Welcome to Crime Brulee, the true crime podcast that serves up some of the most intriguing cases out there. If you're a true crime addict, it's a lot like gourmet food for thought. I'm your host, Kirsten Dorman, and I am so glad to be back after both a busy and a sick spell wherein I lost my voice, which... As you can imagine, not great for recording. And I do want to acknowledge you might hear a little bit of lingering sickness in my voice. I apologize in advance, but I did want to get recording in the studio again as soon as I had it back. I just couldn't stay away, honestly. And before anything else, I also wanted to wish my best friend Grace a very happy 19th birthday. She's a Scorpio and she's one of the kindest, most thoughtful people I think I know. She's been one of my biggest supporters when it comes to doing things like college radio and this podcast. So Grace, if you're listening, and especially if you're listening on your birthday, I hope that you're having a wonderful day and may there be many more to come. Love you. And with that, it's time for us to begin digging into some of the more serious topics on our menu for today. Today, I felt it was important that I include some breaking news. As you've likely heard, there was a school shooting in Santa Clarita, Florida today on November 14th, 2019. The attack was first reported at 7.38 a.m. local time, before school officially started at 8 o'clock. The students in the building at the time were there for what's referred to as zero period, the time of day used for extracurricular classes. For context, here's part of a report from ABC News. Sheriff's deputies rushed to Saugus High School, reporting to an all-too-familiar call. We grabbed our friends and we just ran. Gunfire disrupting the early morning hours at a high school in Santa Clarita, just north of Los Angeles. I first heard shots, then I heard people start running. Everyone was panicked. We turned off the lights, we locked the doors, and then we all just sat and waited. Scared students sending the kind of texts no parent ever wants to get. Like this one saying, everyone is saying there's a shooter on campus. I don't know what's going on, but I love you and dad so much. Authorities clearing the building, students walking out, single file to safety and worried parents waiting to hear if their kids are okay. The suspect, who reports say is a 16-year-old male student whose birthday was today, committed the attack using a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol, which he pulled from his backpack. As the dust settled after this horrific event, his girlfriend and mother reportedly spoke to detectives at the local police station. It was found that, after murdering two students, a 16-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy, as well as injuring two girls, a 14- and 15-year-old, and one boy, a 14-year-old, the suspect turned the gun on himself. According to the Associated Press, Paul Delacorte, the agent in charge of the FBI's Los Angeles field office, said, At this time, we have no indication of motive or ideology. As the details of this horrific event are beginning to come to light, so are the equally terrifying details of what those who were at the school experienced. A freshman girl, Rosie Rodriguez, described being on her way to the library when she heard shots being fired and saw other students running for their lives. 
She ran across the street, she said, to a home where she and 10 other students were given shelter. While some were able to escape school grounds and take refuge in nearby homes like Rodriguez did, others were forced to do their best to find safety within school walls. Here's one student, Mason Peters, who spoke to the BBC about what happened when he and the others in the classroom with him first heard shots being fired. Like doing a lesson in my first period of class, you know, my government class were doing a lesson, and all of a sudden we heard this distinctive sound outside. So my teacher quickly sprang to his feet, um, got up, locked the door, asked one of the students to get the keys, and so we like reinforced it. And then we got turned off all the lights, and then we got a bunch of desks and stuff, and then reinforced the doors, and we all just like stayed hidden. Thankfully, those in Peters' classroom were not the only ones who knew what to do in this situation. Another student, 17-year-old Hayden Trowbridge, spoke to ABC News about what happened when they heard gunfire in his classroom. He said he and his classmates pushed desks up against the door like a barricade, and he then grabbed his metal water bottle to use like a weapon and held onto it as everyone huddled under their desks, holding each other and crying. Yet another student, whose Twitter handle I'm going to assume is also her full name, Megan Putman, tweeted the following at 11.06 local time. My heart is broken. Seeing backpacks scattered everywhere, hearing gunshots, crying in my friend's arms not knowing if we would go home is devastating. When will this stop? Hashtag enough is enough. Hashtag gun control. How many more lives need to be taken to prove that something needs to change? Putman also attached photos of students' belongings strewn about in a grassy outdoor area and what looks to be desks and chairs piled up against the doorway of a classroom, like a barricade. I'd also like to add that officers performed a search on the suspect's house, which is reportedly less than two miles away from the school, according to the New York Times. He was also transferred to a local hospital by medical staff, though his condition at the time of this recording is unknown. Sherry Risley, whose 16-year-old daughter has known the suspect since they attended elementary school together, told the Times, You grew up with someone your whole life, and this happens, and it's really close, and it's surreal. Thank you for listening to this part of the episode today. I know it's very likely going to become a very long mini-episode, and I know this isn't what you would normally expect from Crime Brulee, but I would not have felt right releasing this episode without covering it. Before we get into the rest of today's episode, I do want to leave you with some words from the L.A. County Sheriff. Uh, I hate to have Saugus be added to the names of Columbine, Parkland, Sandy Hook, but it's a reality that affects us all throughout the nation, something we're going to have to deal with. And as Captain Lewis said, we got to figure out what are we doing wrong and how can we stop this from happening in the future. For today's main course, we're digging into a case that's still pretty fresh. Today's will be a kind of mini-episode, if you can still count it as one by the end of this recording, but I'd like you to think of it this way. If regular crime brulee is like food for thought, think of this like a snack for thought of sorts. Part of why we're covering today's case is 
actually because it hits pretty close to home for me. Today, I'd like to take you to the place where I grew up. I was born here. I learned how to do everything from tying my shoe to parallel parking, which, for the record, I still don't do very well. And my immediate family still lives there. According to the county website, Warren County, New Jersey is a special place with a rich history and beautiful scenery, as well as many employees and volunteers ready to serve you. Home to more than 110,000 residents, Warren County, New Jersey came into existence after an act of the New Jersey legislature was passed on November 20, 1824. Since its beginnings, says the site, transportation has played an important role in Warren County's development. Its earliest residents were the Lenny and Lenape, who lived along the rivers and streams of the region. The Dutch were the first Europeans to settle here and dug for copper around 1650, as well as constructed a road from Paraguay to Kingston, New York, so they could transport the fruits of their labor for trade. Interestingly enough, the same road was the first commercial highway built in the United States and is actually still around today. Skipping ahead to the 1830s, we see the opening of the Morris Canal. Some 33 miles of the canal's 102-mile route to Jersey City went through Warren County. According to the site, towns like Port Warren, Port Colden, Port Murray, and Rockport all owe their names and existence to the Morris Canal being there. Eventually, railroads would introduce acceleration to the development of industry within the county, eventually replacing the canal. Today, reads the county site, Sections of the Morris Canal are being transformed into a public greenway across the country. Transportation continues to play an important role in the county's evolution. Highways I-78 and I-80 also cross Warren County, and its proximity to New York, Philadelphia, and some of the most populated areas of the state attract residents who commute to work every day to live in Warren County. According to the county website, there are even plans for a museum meant to highlight how New Jersey shaped transportation history and how transportation in turn shaped New Jersey. Fittingly enough, they plan to call it the New Jersey Transportation Heritage Center. Dare any of you to say that five times fast. Anyway, I know this sounds like a lot of history, and I'll admit, I honestly didn't know the bulk of it before researching for this episode. The reason I'm including it and lengthening what I've already said time and time again is a mini episode of the show is because I feel like it's important to understand how the history of a place can shape it and what brings people there. Also, this is a place that's honestly very near and dear to my heart, so kind of indulged myself a bit. Regardless, it goes without saying that the area where today's case occurred, Washington Township, has been touched by this history in more than one way. Even though you may or may not be tired of hearing about the area's history, we are going to zoom in a little to a place that I think might interest you a little more. The principal event of today's case occurred in the village of Hawk Point, which is a living community for those 55 years old and up. According to their website, the aim of the community is to create a village feeling that is appealing to residents and business owners and a building development that provides a living, working, recreational, and aging environment in a community that will make the village at Hawk Point stand out as a place of distinction. So clearly they're not messing around. 
There's actually a number of really neat sounding already existing features, such as a wine shop, a dry cleaner, and the Hawk Point golf course. I kind of feel like a walking commercial for this place at this point. The entrance to the course can actually be seen from the parking lot of the shop right nearby. I used to pass it all the time when I went there, actually. And for those of you listening who don't know what I'm talking about, ShopRite is a pretty okay local supermarket that apparently is kind of an East Coast thing. For those of you listening that actually live on the East Coast, I apologize for making you listen to me try to explain what a ShopRite is. (laughs) Anyway, I'd say I'm pretty familiar with the area we're talking about here. I mean, two of my friends even had their sweet 16s there. And in case you were wondering, The mashed potato bar and photo booth were both pretty awesome. Both times. I've never been inside the actual community part of it though, so I found it pretty interesting to discover that Hawk Point Village had so much going on. Now that you're painstakingly familiar with our setting, let's get to the facts of today's case. Frank Warner and Joanne Warner were both 73 years old Boundbrook High School sweethearts, according to My Central Jersey. They were married for 58 years and owned a hair salon together in Chester called Frank Anthony. I can't say that I've ever been there for a cut personally, but I can say that it looks like a pretty classy establishment. If you look up the salon on Google, you'll be hard-pressed to find a negative review. And not only this, but they also have a YouTube channel, which I was able to check out. From watching some of their videos, it seems like Frank did a lot of haircutting in his day. I don't know very much about the trade itself, but what I do know is that he seems very passionate about treating his customers to quality service, and honestly, he does seem pretty skilled with a pair of scissors. There's this gentle, kind of personal way that he takes care of all of his customers that I really think shines through, even in a YouTube video. Every gentleman that we serve, we do a warm towel and a moisturizing treatment. It's a beautiful way to relax our, our men clientele. Okay, Mr. Styles is uh, our answer to uh, Anderson Cooper. S- strong similarity, he even has the same glasses. I have to perform on uh, Mr. Styles because he's he's a dog groomer for a living. And if I mess up, he knows. <laughs> you know, the first thing most people do is pick up a clipper and start chopping the hair off with a clipper. We prefer to to do a nice scissor haircut whenever possible. I like to finish all my haircuts with a double shear. It texturizes and uh, cuts the hair straight off all at the same time. He likes his top cut as short as I could cut it with without it sticking up, so I've got to be very careful in this area. Gets his hair cut like every four to five weeks, so good, good customer, very good customer. In fact, Peach Hardy, who was starting a beauty salon in Flemington with his wife, Danielle, came to Frank seeking advice. Apparently, as the story is told in an article from the Lehigh Valley Live, Hardy was having trouble finding a good source of business advice. He told the Live that he got the Warner's daughter, who I want to note there's not very much information on at all right now except for the fact that she exists. He got the Warner's daughter on the phone and eventually got to sit down to talk to the man himself. 
Frank Warner eventually became a business mentor and surrogate father to Hardy. Hardy has also gone on to have what seems like a pretty successful venture into the coffee business, so it certainly seems like Frank's advice has paid off. This kind of relationship isn't just unique to Hardy, though. Apparently, the Warners both had great relationships with all 30 members of their staff. They were compassionate, giving people to every person who worked for them, which, and I know this sounds really, really cliche, but it's just something that you don't see very often. Also, I don't know how far this goes back, but I also found that they, as a salon, supported the Eric Kobe Adoption Fund last December in 2018. I'll let Frank tell you a little bit about that, though. Every once in a while in life, uh, you get a calling, and I've been called this year to uh, help the Eric Kobe Adoption Fund. Uh, it's a fund that helps people who are adopting children from all over the world. Uh, as you know, to adopt children, it's quite expensive. So this holiday season, we're donating a dollar of every service to the Eric Kobe Adoption Fund, something that's near and dear to my heart. Frank even shaved his head in 2016 in support of those suffering with cancer. Apparently, he hadn't had his head shaved like that since he was in junior high. Hi, I'm Frank Warner from Frank Anthony Salon, Chester, New Jersey. Uh, over the many years, we've had hundreds of women come through the salon that were going through chemotherapy and losing their hair. Uh, sometimes we give them a very short haircut. Sometimes we have to remove all the hair, and it's a traumatic experience both for us and for the customer. So uh, today I decided to show my love and support to all the women that have come before me to uh, have their hair fall out. So today, just to show my love and support, I'm going to remove my hair. To put it simply, there's no doubt that watching him put a smile on my face, and I have a sneaking suspicion that at least one or two of you was smiling right along with me. Another thing to note about the Warners was that they attended services at the Southbridge Community Church in Union Township, where the relationships they fostered with fellow congregation members were reportedly just as rich as those they had with their employees. One such congregation member, a man named Mark Vesper, told the Live that the Warners were in a different league and just kind of had this magnetism to them. I know that in the world of true crime, we always say, you never really know anybody, and things are almost never as perfect as they seem, but honestly, Frank and Joanne seem to me like one of those couples who are just made for each other. That's why it breaks my heart to have to tell you that they were also tragically found deceased together in their home on October 27th of this year after police responded to a call about an unconscious person in their home. Although information on what the condition their bodies were found in is scarce, I will touch upon some of what we know. The subject matter that we cover here on Crime Brulee is often difficult to talk about, but I more than understand if some of the details of the case that we're about to cover are too difficult for some of you to digest. Honestly, as I try my best to get as close as possible to understanding or knowing the victims, whatever you want to call it, the more they blossom into people for me. 
Sometimes it feels like we push aside the victims when we talk about true crime and focus only on the gory details, the scandal, or how unhinged the perpetrator must be. While these things can be topics of respectful discussion in a lot of ways, I feel like we forget to look at victims as people whose lives were either lost or destroyed because of the situations that we talk about or research out of curiosity or fascination or passion. So that's why I try to get to know them. Getting to know them, though, can make talking about the horrible things that happened to them a lot harder. Like, a lot harder. So I understand if or when any of you feel as if there are certain things that we talk about here on Crime Brulee that you may need to skip over for the sake of your own mental health. Please know that I will never be going into an excessive or disrespectful amount of detail, but also know that you are more than free to skip ahead about 30 seconds or so if you need to. And as far as this episode goes, I would recommend doing so now. As of right now, we know that Frank and Joanne were attacked in a way that has been described as bludgeoning. The perpetrator reportedly attacked the couple with baseball bats, as well as stabbing and attempting to suffocate them. Their cause of death, according to authorities, was blunt force trauma. For those of you who needed to skip ahead, now would be the time to rejoin us. Let's rewind a bit here. Frank and Joanne, as it turns out, have a son. He's 50 years old, and his name is Todd. Todd Warner lived with his parents, but was not there when they were discovered on the 27th. So, where was he? I'm glad you asked. Because Todd was driving his mother's silver Kia Soul up to the Wind Creek Casino in Bethlehem, which is between a half hour and just under an hour away. This is about eight hours before his parents would be discovered. Todd also had stolen his parents' credit card and had it with him because... I mean, he's going to a casino. If you really are wondering, though, he was apparently playing blackjack, at least at one point. Apparently, Todd has struggled with gambling addiction for a long time. He's also struggled with alcoholism and has had two failed marriages, all things which I think anyone would agree are not great for a person's mental health. In fact, Todd has had at least one stay in rehab that we know about. Remember Peach Hardy? The man Frank helped with his business? Well, when Todd got out of rehab in 2014 and when he apparently needed advice on how to pick up the pieces again, Hardy was there to counsel him. I want to make it clear that Hardy doesn't seem to have any kind of license or credentials when it comes to counseling, although that was the language used when I was looking into this. Hardy himself only professes in his Twitter bio to love Jesus, his wife, people, worship, and coffee. He also does call himself a homegrown entrepreneur, which I feel like is a pretty fair claim. Which is why to me, it seems like this counseling thing is really more of a mentoring thing. Regardless, police were now looking for Todd with arrest warrants for credit card and motor vehicle theft, as well as his possible connection to his parents' death. He was arrested just after 4.30 p.m. on the 28th. Interestingly enough, he was arrested at the blackjack table of Parks Casino in Bensalem, Pennsylvania, not the Wind Creek Casino in Bethlehem. It's unclear to me if he had been to more casinos than just these two, though. 
For all I've been able to find so far, there has been no information released about where he was between the times he spent at these two establishments. Regardless, after Todd was taken into custody, investigators were able to begin reviewing surveillance footage of the park's casino according to the morning call. The footage shows Todd parking there at 7.49 a.m., which leaves me with even more questions than before. As of the time of this recording, there has been no information, if any, released about the exact time or time frame Frank and Joyce were found in, except that it was the evening of the 27th. It's likely that Todd, the one and only possible suspect in this case, if we're being honest, had already murdered them because he was caught on surveillance at the Wind Creek Casino, putting him there for two hours between 10 a.m. and noon. It was here that Todd took out a cash advance that the Lehigh Valley Live reports to be between $4,100 and $8,000 on the credit card he had stolen. So where else did he go between there and the park's casino? We have this big stretch of time between noon and when he pulls up at the parks at almost 8 o'clock the next morning. He had to be doing something because he was then presumably out all hours of the day and night, unless he just pulled over somewhere and maybe slept in his car. Also, what was he doing for the majority of the day on the 28th? We know he was arrested just after 4.30 p.m., but it seems like he didn't leave the park's casino between the time he arrived and then. Otherwise, I think it would have been mentioned by someone. As of right now, nobody has mentioned him leaving and coming back or anything of that nature, which leads me to believe he had stayed at the park's casino potentially for the whole day. If he had left the casino where he was arrested any time between 7.49 and just after 4.30, he could have done any number of things that would affect this case, like destroying evidence. We do know what the police were doing all day on the 28th, though. Looking for him. In fact, police said they believed Warner to be armed and dangerous. So, let's go back to him being taken into custody. He's charged with receiving stolen property and held in Bucks County Jail on a bail of $250,000. He is not transferred back to Warren County until either November 5th or 6th. I want to clarify that sources do vary here, although it could just be that I'm misreading things. I've seen both that he was returned on the 5th and extradited on the 6th, so unless I'm misreading things, which is very, very possible, it could also be, I'm thinking that some events may have occurred on the 5th and others on the 6th, but I want to apologize for the lack of clarity here. Maybe as more information becomes available to the public, we'll know exact dates, but I don't think it's super imperative to the case, so I'm willing to just let it rest at being the 5th or 6th. Although I can and will post an update if any clarifying information comes out. It also isn't super clear as to whether or not questioning took place in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, or in Warren County, or in a little bit of both. What we do know is that Washington Township Police didn't waste any time when it came to questioning Warner. Initially, Warren is just a person of interest and is not charged with homicide, according to Warren County Prosecutor Richard Burke. The only charges against him at the moment are for stealing the car and credit card. If you'll remember from the Robert Fisher episodes, we talked a little bit about what makes a person a person of interest versus a suspect. 
A person of interest is not necessarily someone police consider a potential suspect. Really, a person of interest is just someone who investigators believe has vital information about whatever they happen to be looking into and someone they're kind of itching to talk to. Often, we hear about persons of interest becoming suspects or accessories later on in an investigation, which, when you think about it, makes sense because of how close to the crime they have the potential to be. Warner himself ended up going straight from person of interest to prime suspect that very same day when he was charged with the deaths of both Frank and Joanne. Honestly though, I wasn't at all surprised at this development in the case, and I don't think any of you will be either, especially not after I tell you that Warner ended up confessing to police. It's through this confession, I'm assuming, that a lot more information was able to be released to the public, such as the nature of Frank and Joanne's deaths. Just this Tuesday, two days ago, on November 12th, Warner made his first court appearance since being charged. He ended up pleading not guilty through public defender John McGuigan. Also, now feels like as good a time as any to note that the charge for receiving stolen property leveled against Warner in Bucks County has since been withdrawn. And grossly enough, I also want to note that Warner had the absolute gall to yawn while he was being read his rights. Sure, reports say that he looked tired, and I get that you might not be sleeping all that well right after you murdered your wonderful, loving, giving parents in cold blood over a credit card and a silver Kia, but still. The least you could do is look like you have some personal stake in the situation. I don't know what exactly it is about him openly yawning in court, but it comes off to me a bit like he was bored with what was going on, and I just find that so disrespectful, especially considering what he's done and who he's done it to. The first assistant prosecutor, Mike McDonald, did say that the public defender's office asked for an extension on what was referred to as just Friday afternoon, which I'm assuming means the 8th of November, but I can't confirm. This means Warner is going to appear again in court next Tuesday, the 19th, at 9am for a bail hearing. At the time of this recording, that's all the information we have so far on this case. I do plan to keep an eye on it though, and I hope you do too. As things continue coming to light, I'll be sure to keep you guys updated as much as I can through the show's Instagram, if nothing else. With that, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Crime Brulee. If this episode has in fact whetted your true crime appetite, please show Crime Brulee support by sharing this episode with others or really however you like. And if you're particularly hungry for more, be sure to follow the show on Instagram, again, at Crime Brulee Podcast. It's all lowercase, no spaces, Crime Brulee Podcast. Make sure to follow us to see some photos related to today's episode and stay updated on what we might be serving up next. If you have any case suggestions, please feel free to message me via DM. I'm always looking for more to cover, and I really do love hearing from you guys. By the way, you definitely won't want to miss the next case I'm serving up, because it was actually chosen by you guys. That's right, our next case is a listener's choice, and as it turns out, you guys have seriously good taste. 
Once again, thank you for listening in to this episode of Crime Brulee. I'm your host, Kirsten Dorman, and I hope you'll join me again soon to dig into our next case, the Snapchat murders. Thank you.